Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. So, as we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had someone in your life that you've either loved or respected so much that whenever they ask you to do something, it just means more because of who they are? In other words, you would virtually do anything for this person because you love and respect them so much. Maybe it's a parent, maybe, it was a, maybe it's a coach or a mentor, maybe it's a boss that you really like. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I've had several of these in my life, but in high school, I had a baseball coach that I really looked up to and I really respected. And in fact, he was one of those guys, and this is kind of a cliche, but you'll hear sometimes people say, uh, especially like sports players, they'll say like athletes will say, I would run through a wall for that coach because I love him and I respect him so much. This was, this was one of those guys for me. And it was really one of, our guys, one of those guys for all of our baseball team. And I remember any time he asked us to do something, even if it was a mundane task, even if it was something we didn't really want to do, it almost became like the most important thing I did that day was just to do the thing that he asked me to do. No matter what he asked me to do, it always meant more when he asked me. And I remember there was this one thing that all of us really hated to do on our baseball team, and that was uh, when we had to get the portable batting cage out for batting practice before our practices. And uh, typically, and it wouldn't happen every, every, every practice, and so we would store this batting cage, this huge batting cage, and it's, it's like that batting cage that you see when you go to the Diamondbacks game. If you ever showed up for like early batting practice, they had that big batting cage that's out there behind home plate. This is what I'm talking about. We had one of those, right? And we would store it outside of the field, basically in a ditch, and I don't know why it was in some kind of ditch, but it was in a ditch, and, uh, and it was a pain to have to try to get that thing into the field, but whenever this coach asked you to do it, even though we hated it, it was like something that we actually really wanted to do. In fact, it was so difficult to get out because the tires were always flat, and it was meant to roll, but you, because you couldn't roll it, you actually had to lift it and carry it all the way from the ditch into the, into the baseball field, through the outfield, through the infield, and then behind home plate to set it down. In other words, you needed about six guys to do this every time. And so I remember whenever that coach would ask me to do it, right, what you had to do is basically go around and get five other guys on the team to help you do it. And when he did, and when he asked me to do it, it was like I was gathering a platoon to go storm the beaches at Normandy. Like that's how it felt. Even though if anybody else asked me to do it, it was like the thing that I did, the last thing that I would want to do. When he asked, it was different. And I think we've all had those kinds of people in our lives, whether it was a coach or a teacher, again, a mentor, a boss. When that person asks you to do something, it just means more. It could be the most, again, mundane task, but you just feel privileged to be asked by this person to do it. Now, if that person then asks you to do something that's really important, not just mundane. It's an important person asking you to do something that's critically important. I mean, forget about it. When those two things meet up, it like reorients your life. You're willing to move heaven and earth to get that thing done. You're so honored to be asked. And as we start back into our sermon series this morning, looking at the book of Jeremiah and Jeremiah chapter 29, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to respond to the most important thing the most important calling given by the most important person imaginable as we look at Jeremiah chapter 29 this morning. When we started this series about a month ago, we introduced this series by looking at what I said was the most central verse of this chapter, verse 7 in Jeremiah chapter 29. 
Talked about this being the most significant statement in this letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles, Israelite exiles who are in Babylon. And we went over this verse, and you're familiar with it. You probably have it memorized. We put it up there on the screen. You probably have it memorized by this point. I should have it memorized. I don't know why I don't, but I don't yet. But uh, we've talked about this, and we've talked a lot about the words welfare and flourishing because they're important words, of course, in this verse. But I want to focus us on another word in this verse this morning as we look at this verse 7 again, and it's the word sent. And we're going to be talking about what it looks like to be a church who sends and a church who is sent at the same time. That we are a church, what it means to be the church of Jesus is that we are sent and then we also send. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning as we get into it. But with that being said, let's read verse 7 again. But seek the welfare of the city, and again, this is God talking to the Israelites in exile, where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, or in its flourishing, you will find your flourishing. Now remember, again, this is God speaking to his people, Israel, as they're under the ancient Babylonian empire, and he's telling them that he is there because he has sent them there. Notice that phrase there. When he says, I have sent you into exile, he's leaving no room for doubt as far as why they are there. They're not there because the Babylonians brought them there necessarily. They're not there because King Nebuchadnezzar just decided on his own to go ransack the city of Jerusalem. God says to Israel, the reason you are here in exile is because I sent you there. Now there's a couple of reasons why this is important. So we talked about a couple weeks ago when God introduces this letter, or introduces himself at the beginning of this letter to the Israelites, he says, I am the Lord of hosts, which of course highlighted the sovereignty of God. And when God says again here in verse 7, I have sent you, and then if you go to verse 20 in the same chapter, God repeats it again, I have sent you. I am the one who has sent you to this place. He's highlighting and reinforcing the idea that he is sovereign. He is the one who has put them there. And there's two reasons why this is important. The first one is this, is that it actually gives Israel hope. If God is in control of this situation and he is the one who has put Israel there, then he is the one who can get Israel out. And so when he tells them, you're going to go back in 70 years, but you're going to be in the land for 70 years, and then I'll bring you home, they can trust in the fact that what God is doing and what he's promising to do, he will do because he's sovereign. But the second reason that he does this, and this is the reason that I want to talk about here this morning and focus on this morning, the reason that he tells Israel that he has sent them is because he wants them to know that he has a purpose for their exile. We saw this the past two weeks when we've looked at verses 5 and 6 when God says, even though you're in this place, I want you to build houses, I want you to have families, I want you to raise children, and I want you to increase, not decrease. And the reason he's telling them that is because he has a purpose for them in exile, that he has sent them there for a purpose. In other words, don't waste away, don't decrease, right? Don't just think about the home that you've left behind. Don't wallow in doubt and sadness and defeat. Because I have a purpose, I have a calling for you. And yes, they're in exile. Yes, they're suffering. Yes, they have to live under the oppressor uh, in a land, uh, with a land of their enemies who have murdered their families and burned down their city. And it's hard to imagine a more difficult and heart-wrenching situation than what they're in. But that doesn't mean that God has given up on his people. In fact, God says two things again to Israel. I am the God of Israel, and I am the Lord of hosts. I am the God who is still in relationship with you. You are my people, and I have called you specifically for this purpose. 
I have called you and I have sent you for this purpose. So what is this calling and what is this purpose? Well, as we've been talking about the past couple of weeks, going all the way back to the calling to Abraham in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, we find it in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, you will be blessed. In other words, you are my, my people will come from you. You are, I'm setting you aside, setting you apart as my people to be blessed so that you then can be a blessing to the nations. And this is that calling again that God repeats here in verse 7, that you are, to fl- you are to pray for and seek the flourishing or the blessing or the shalom of the city in which you find yourself. It's a continuation or a restating of that original promise to Abraham. Now, I said a few minutes ago that we were going to talk about the most important person in the universe asking us to do the most important thing in the world. And I think we see it right here in verse 7. God, the most important person in the universe, has now reminded Israel of how important this task is that he's entrusted them with. Right? The sovereign Lord of hosts is saying to you, I sent you there and entrusted you with this purpose, and here is that purpose. Pray for and seek the flourishing and the blessing of the city in which you find yourself. Now, I'm sure we've all watched those movies where it's like an end-of-the-world type scenario. You've seen those like, movies where there's like a, you know, like a threat of an alien invasion or a large asteroid that's going to come and take out the planet. Right? And if you've seen some of those movies, typically in those movies, like you'll find by the end of the movie, the hero who actually saves the day is just like a regular guy. He's like an oil drill guy, an oil rig guy, or he's a, you know, maybe like a crop dust plane pilot or something like that. And if you're a child of the 90s, you know exactly the two movies that I just... Without even naming them, you know exactly the, day, the two movies that I've just referenced. But I mean, part of that, and when you're watching that, I think all of us, at one time or another, as we're watching that happen, probably think to ourselves, I wonder if I could be that guy. I wonder if I was given that chance, because in both of those movies, these men give their lives to save the planet, essentially. That's what happens by the end of the movie, right? And so I think all of us, as we're watching this, think to ourselves, would I be able to do that? Would I be able to lay down my life and sacrifice to save the plan. Would I be courageous enough? Would I be willing to do that? And then, of course, we realize it's a movie, and it'll probably never happen anyway, so it doesn't matter, and then we just enjoy the end of the movie, right? But here's the thing that this calling is about that God gives Israel, and it's the same one that he gives his church today. This calling is real, and it's me even more important than saving the planet from alien invasion or saving the planet from an asteroid that's hurtling through space at the planet. Because while one might save the planet today, the other calling saves lives for eternity. And so when God frames Israel's situation according to this all-important calling, he essentially takes everything away from them. And I'm sure in some ways they felt like their world had come to an end. That aliens had invaded and taken everything in this cataclysmic event that they knew about their world and and, and, and the things that meant the most to them. And yet God repositions them in exile and says, I have sent you. And look, this is why this act of sending is so important. Because as we see throughout the biblical story, what we begin to, what we begin to realize is this pattern of God not only being someone who wants his people to be sent, but that God himself is a God who sends and a God who is sent. Now this is going to require a little bit of Trinitarian theology this morning. You guys ready for this? It's okay because Christian theology is Trinitarian theology, so 
We're going to work through this, but I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible, but I think this is important to see, because as you look a little closer, what you see is this pattern of how God acts throughout Scripture in terms of being sent and also sending, and it happens within the Godhead, within the Trinity. We see that God, the Father, sends the Son and the Spirit. You know, in John's Gospel, John mentions Jesus being sent by the Father around 40 times. Either he directly says it, or Jesus himself says I've been sent by the Father. And it's clear that a big part of Jesus' ministry, in fact, is that he has been sent by the Father to accomplish a mission. And understanding this, this sentness also fulfills messianic expectations in the Old Testament where God says, I will send a Messiah who will come to you. God also sends the Holy Spirit, and it's clear that Jesus is filled by the Spirit to carry out his earthly ministry. We know, you think right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted, he's led there by the Spirit. The Spirit leads him there. Jesus is also raised from death by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom God the Father sends. Secondly, we see God the Son sending the Spirit and the apostles. After his resurrection, then, Jesus sends the Spirit to empower the, the apostles to accomplish what he has sent them to to do. We see this happen in Pentecost as Jesus sends the disciples and the apostles, then he sends the Spirit at Pentecost, sending them out to accomplish the mission that he began. And then finally, God the Spirit sends Jesus and he also sends the apostles. Jesus not only has the power of the Spirit during his ministry, but he's led by the Spirit into ministry, sent to accomplish the will of God. And then you see the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts sending the apostles over and over again, especially in Paul's missionary journeys. We get the sense that it's the Spirit, of course, who is sending Paul out on all of his missionary journeys. We see that repeatedly with other, with other uh, sendings as well throughout the book of Acts. Now look, the Bible, of course, is a book about God, or a collection of books, we should say, about God. But it also records a lot of stories about human beings in those pages. And if you look closely, one of the things you'll notice is that the main characters of Scripture, almost every single one of them, has a moment where they are sent by God to do something. There's a calling and there's a sending. Guys like Abraham, of course, Moses, think about David, all of the Old Testament prophets, including Jeremiah himself, experience these times where God sends them because God is ascending God in the end. And since we're in the book of Jeremiah, Let's take a little bit more, let's take a little look, uh, a, little, a little closer look at Jeremiah's calling. Because I think this is a really good one to learn from. Each calling is a little bit different for each one of these guys. Moses is a little bit different than David's. David's a little bit different than Abraham's, that kind of thing. But Jeremiah's is actually really poignant. We find it in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. And it says this. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then I said, O Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, of course, you know, we call this Jeremiah's calling. Really, the activity that's going on here is all God's activity. 
And God says that really from the very beginning. Jeremiah, I, I knew you in the womb. Before you even knew you were Jeremiah, I formed you in the womb for this purpose. Now think about this for a minute. He goes back as far as he can with Jeremiah. Think about the kind of effect this would have had on him, especially given the fact that Jeremiah seems to be very hesitant about this calling that God placed on his life. It's like, I'm too young. I don't know how to speak. Like, there's a lot of danger. Lord, what you're asking me to do is, is really, really difficult and really, really dangerous. Can you just, like, ask the next guy instead, why are you asking me? And God says to Jeremiah, I have formed you and called you for this very purpose. Now imagine if you're Jeremiah in that moment. Before you realize that before you even drew a breath in this world, before you knew your name, before you could speak or walk, God is telling you, I knew you and I set you apart for this very purpose, to be a prophet in this way. For a guy who was very young at this point, a guy who was obviously afraid and he was struggling with his own confidence, God is giving him all the confidence in the world by pointing him back to his own calling. Imagine hearing what Jeremiah hears from God. It's like the all-time pep talk. You feel like, you probably feel like you could do anything after hearing this from God. Jeremiah is still a little hesitant, though, because of his youth and because of the fact that he knows what this calling will cost him. Look, God's not sending Jeremiah to go to the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders and the political leaders of Israel, and to say to them, God is so pleased with what you're doing. You guys are doing a great job. Let me tell you something. God is so happy with the fact that you're so faithful and you're doing such things in such a right way and you're promoting justice and you're so faithful to him. He's sending Jeremiah, and Jeremiah knows this, to go to the religious leader of Israel and say, basically, you guys are immoral, <laughs> you're unrighteous, you're idolaters, and if you don't repent, God is going to destroy this city and destroy this kingdom. Now imagine for a moment, that's, a, that's not an easy message to communicate, to say the least. And he's communicating it to the most dangerous people possible because these guys have free reign over what happens to Jeremiah after he does something like this. And Jeremiah knows at least things are going to be awkward, <laughs> at the very least. Uh, I'm going to be the pariah socially. I'm going to have no friends. My family might disown me. And not only that, I might end up in prison or my life might be threatened. And really, when you know Jeremiah's ministry, basically all of those things that I just said happened to him in his ministry. And he knows it's going to happen to him. Even, there's even a, a plot to have him killed. The religious leaders finally get so tired of Jeremiah, they're like, we need to kill this guy to shut him up. God protects him from that ultimately and delivers him from that threat. But look, this is why Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. He's weeping because he knows how difficult this calling is. First of all, he loves Israel. He loves his nation, right? He loves his community. He loves the kingdom. And so to bring this message of judgment and repentance, he knows is going to be harmful and hurtful because God will deliver on what he promises. And then secondly, he knows how much danger he's in as he speaks these words. There's a real and present threat there. And so God knows all this is going to happen, and the question is, maybe, maybe you're thinking, I know I'm thinking as I'm reading this, why would God call Jeremiah to such a difficult task? Why would God call Jeremiah in such a difficult way to face all of these things that they both know are going to happen to him? Well, I think it's really difficult to answer that question because we can't get in the mind of God, but I don't even really think that's the point of this. I think the point of this is to show us where God is present in the midst of this calling. And I think especially for our sake, 
and for our calling, what it means to be the church today, what we're meant to see is how God is present as he calls us and as he sends us. So I want to review a few things that we see from this calling. These things that we see how God is present and how it impacts us even today. First of all, we see that God is sovereign. We've talked a little bit about this, but just to be clear, when we're saying that God is sovereign, what we're saying is that God is in control of everything and nothing can stop what he wants to do. And so everything about God's sending, everything about God's calling always flows from this understanding that God is sovereign. Because what he has done, he has done. What he will do and what he says he's going to do, he's going to do. And so if he tells Jeremiah, I will be with you and deliver you and protect you, then Jeremiah has to trust that God is sovereign so that he can actually follow through on those promises. If he says, you will speak my words and my words will build and plant life, Jeremiah has to trust that God knows what he's talking about and he will bring the fruit that he says he's going to bring when his word is spoken. It's not like as if one of us were to promise that something could happen. Like if I were to promise you this morning that right after this service, I'm going to go right next door and throw down a nasty dunk on that 10-foot hoop in the gym on the other side of the wall. All right? You guys would know, first of all, that that's not going to happen. <laughs> we know that because there are certain things preventing me from doing that. One would be gravity. Another one would be uh, lack of height. Another one would be age. Lack of just overall basketball ability. That might be one. And we could go on and on and on. That's enough. Right? You get the point. But there are things that would stop me from accomplishing that. With the sovereign God, he does what he says he will do, and nothing can stop him from following through on what he says he's going to do. And so we can be confident that if he says in his calling that they will produce life and flourishing, that he will accomplish that. So God is sovereign. Secondly, God sets us apart. You know, as God makes clear to Jeremiah again, before the world even knew that there was a Jeremiah, God had already set him apart for this purpose. Now, if God's sovereignty is about the power of God being able to accomplish his promises, his activity to set us apart is about his goodness on our behalf. In other words, when he tells Jeremiah, look, Jeremiah, I know this is a difficult calling. I know you can't see how this is going to turn out. But I'm telling you, I have created you this way for a purpose. And I've created you for a good purpose. And in the end, this is the best possible thing you could do, is to listen to me and to follow my calling on your life. Now, Jeremiah ultimately realizes that because he goes through with what, trusting God's calling. But at the same time, what he's telling Jeremiah is, look, Jeremiah, I formed you in the womb. I know you better than anybody. I know you better than you know yourself. And trust me, even though this doesn't look right, this is for your good. That's part of God setting us apart, setting us apart in his holiness for our own good. Third, God is with us. You know, when God sends his people out, he never just sits back and says, all right, go, good luck. I'll be here waiting for you. Let me know how it goes when you get back. God says, God says, come with me because I am out there. We just talked about the fact that God is sent. God is already on mission. And so what he's saying is, come with me. As I send you, I am with you. He never leaves us alone. In fact, he goes in front of us and goes before us and tells us to come with him. God will deliver us. You know, being sent into the world as one of God's people is not an easy calling. You may know that. You may have experienced this in your life in practical, tangible ways. We talked about all that it would cost Jeremiah. We also talked about how difficult it would be for the Israelites to be in the position that they were in. 
to seek the flourishing of the Babylonians, their murderous enemies who were oppressing them. We've said earlier in this series that as Christians today, we share a lot of exile parallels, at least, in principle, with the Israelites who are in exile in Babylon. And look, the reality is that for most of us as American Christians, we're not going to have to seek the flourishing of people who have killed our families and burnt our cities and burnt our neighborhoods to the ground. But at the same time, when we are called out, we are called out as exiles with the same kind of mentality that Israel is being presented here. And so there are times we may face ridicule, rejection, even hostility for our faith. Certainly what this will require of us is to be uncomfortable at times. We'll have to face difficult decisions and we'll have to make sacrifices in order to be faithful instead of being comfortable, in order to be faithful instead of being unfaithful. When God sends us, though, we can be confident in the fact that just as he delivered Jeremiah from death, just as he delivered Israel 70 years later after this letter was written, he did deliver them back to the land, that he will deliver us as well. If not in this life, in the next life. God will deliver us, God will speak. You know, of course, one of Jeremiah's fears is not only that he's young, but he asks the question, what will I say? God, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say. All these prophets have these great words and these oracles that I've heard them uh, utter on your behalf, but I I don't know how to say those. I I don't know how to speak those things. It reminds me maybe of Moses. Moses said to God, when God called Moses, you're going to speak for me to the Israelites. And Moses says, look, man, uh, how about you talk to, have you, have you heard Aaron speak? That guy can deliver a mean sermon. Why don't you ask that guy instead of me? And God says, no, I've chosen you. And look, in both situations, God says to them, it's not your words that will bring building and life and flourishing. It's my words My words, which are good news and are living and active, have the power to change lives. And I know that Christians, we ask the same kind of question. As God sends me out, like, I know I'm supposed to share the gospel. I know I'm supposed to talk to people about Jesus and my story. But what if it's awkward? What if I say the wrong thing? Uh, What if, you know, I, I offend somebody? What if I end up just, you know, harming a relationship? And God reminds us, look, it's not your words that save. It's not your words that give life. It's my words. My words are the ones that are living and active and bring life. God will speak. And finally, God will bring fruit. You know, at the end of the day, all the results depend upon God. We don't have the power to save anybody. We don't have the power to change lives and change hearts. We may change minds from time to time, but we don't change hearts. We don't change lives. We don't change destinies. We don't change identities. We don't save people. God does. And when God sends us, we can be confident in the fact that he will bring the results. God changes lives. He is the one who brings the blessing and the flourishing. And so given our situation then as the church, what does it look like to be sent into the world? We said this is about a church who is sent into the world and a church who who sends and who is sent. What does that look like on a day-to-day basis for you and me? Well, I've quoted Christopher Wright in this way a few different times, so if you've heard this quote, it's just just good to hear again. I love it. Um, It's not so much that God has a mission for his church, but a church for his mission in the world. And look, that doesn't mean that mission defines us. But the reality is that our relationship with Jesus is what defines us as Christians. But I think as we've seen here, if we're in relationship with Jesus, we're in relationship with God the Son who is both sent and who sends. Remember, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he also talks about, I will send you the Spirit. 
to equip you and enable you to fulfill my mission. So Jesus is one who is sent and also does the sending. And so to be in relationship with Jesus is to be where he is and to be a part of what he's doing, which means to be sent. And in that way, Christianity is a sent religion, if you will. At our core, what it means is to be people who are sent. Trivia time. What does the word apostles mean? Anybody know what the word apostles mean? And I'm actually asking for an answer, so if you know, you can go ahead and shout it out. Apostle. We use the word all the time. It's in the Bible a lot. Right? We talk about, you know, the 12 apostles, the apostle Paul. We use it all the time. Apostle. Anybody? Teachers. Not, not, that's not one of No, 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 no. Apostle. Apostle means, someone said it, sent one. It just means sent one, right? And when you think about it, like these are the titles that, that, that the Bible wants us to know the 12 by. This is the title that Paul fights so much for with the Corinthians about, I am an apostle. And you would think like, does that mean like king? Does that mean like prince? Does that have some kind of, you know, grandiose meaning to it? And all it means is sent one. And look, we use apostle and disciple interchangeably as we should because disciple means more of like follower of Jesus, Christian, disciple, follower of Jesus. It all means the same thing. But to follow Jesus means to be sent, right? It's a part of what it means to understand how we follow Jesus. And it's interesting to note that, you know, as the apostles are called out, that at their core, what they understand their calling to be about is sent one. Every time they call themselves an apostle, they know exactly what that means. That means that I've been sent by God. Now, remember last week we talked about Jesus sending the disciples as witnesses at the beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1. And we talked about the fact that they were called to be witnesses of what they saw Jesus do. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In other words, what he's saying is everything that you've seen me do, you're now to do. And we talked about how Jesus moved into the neighborhood, right? That Jesus took on flesh, incarnated, become, became the one who dwelt among us. And we tied these two ideas together with uh, kind of this idea, this quote from Alan Hirsch that I quoted last week. But um, I want to quote it again because I think it's a good way to tie all this together. Remember he called this, a, a, the church, referred to the church as a conspiracy of little Jesuses, a collection of of people getting together to accomplish uh, the witness of Jesus. And he says it's the embodiment, our willingness to embody and to live out Jesus' life and message that creates spiritual authority. So we think about our mission and what it means to be people who are preaching this message that we believe to be the good news for everyone and the truth for everything. That's the spiritual authority. Living this out creates that kind of spiritual authority in our culture. Our witness is a vital link in giving the claims of Jesus credibility in the eyes of non-Christian people. And look, it's living out the embodiment of Christian witness, the incarnation of the message that gives the gospel its tangible truth. And I think that this right here, this understanding of what it means to live out the truth, that is no more important than it ever has been than in the culture that we live in right now, in the world that we live in right now. You know, you'll often say that people... Have it, you often say that people don't want to listen to truth anymore, right? That we live in a world without truth and those kinds of things. And to a certain degree, that's true. We especially might say that about people who, you know, are outside of the church and that kind of thing. But look, I think while that may be true for some people, I think most people actually do want to know truth. 
In fact, I think there's a need for people to know truth. Now, we live in a world right now where there's not much that you can stake your claim because truth is, also, is always moving all over the place. And so it's really hard to stake your claim on what is actually true. But that doesn't change the fact that every human being was created in the image of God. And so the way that we process and understand our existence and the world that we live in is by finding some kind of truth to root ourselves in. I don't think there's any such thing as somebody who doesn't want to know the truth or is not a truth seeker. Now, there is a such thing as people who don't want to find the truth and have given up on finding the truth in the Bible and at the church. But they're still truth seekers. Because people aren't moved as much anymore by because God says so. But they are moved by here is truth. And it's being presented for you to see and to touch and to experience. Tim Keller explains this view of truth pretty well as far as like the way that people are processing all of this right now and their need to find some kind of meaning and purpose beyond the world. And what he's talking about here in this quote is the perspective of typically what's called secularism, which is just that everything that is true kind of either comes from me or comes from what I can find around me in the world. There's no other kind of supernatural truth or there's no transcendent truth. It's all just kind of right here, either in me or it's right here around me. And he says what this looks like is that whatever gives, meaning, whatever gives your life meaning and purpose, you will, have, you will have to be something within the confines of the earthly time frame. You must, as it were, rest your heart in something within the limited horizons of time and space. In other words, if you're finding your truth in the earthly confines of what's around us, then you have to root it somewhere uh, in the limited horizons of time and space, in the limited horizons of creation. Whatever you decide will give meaning to your life or will have to be some form of this world happiness, comfort, or achievement. Or at best, it might be a love relationship. But death, of course, destroys all of these things. So maybe at best, if you're looking for truth in this world, you might find things like maybe a sense of happiness, some comfort, some sense of achievement, maybe a relationship if you're really lucky, like you'll find a good love relationship, maybe a marriage that lasts, that's great. But ultimately, of course, death destroys all of these things. In the end, death takes away everything. Modern culture, then, is the worst in history at preparing its members for the only inevitability which we all face, which is death. And so what, what happens then is we get to a place where even though people are searching for truth, they rest there for a while until they realize that their truth can't really answer the bigger questions that they're meant to ask as a person created in the image of God. Realizing that they're an eternal being and I was created for eternity. Now how does my truth system that only focuses on this world or how I feel about myself in the moment actually satisfy and answer that deeper longing for truth that I'm asking for and looking for? And we see evidence of this kind of thing everywhere. If you've been to a funeral or you've experienced the death of a loved one or a friend recently who is not a believer, who doesn't have faith, you'll see the difference in the way that they process the hopelessness of what they're facing. It's a really sad situation to watch those things happen because in the end what you see is that everything that they believed they were about, everything that is, they believed was true is fading away and has already faded away through their fingertips. I was watching um, this past couple weeks, this, this hit me as I was watching this past week, a tribute concert uh, that was put on for a musician by the name of Taylor Hawkins. And uh, if you don't know who Taylor Hawkins is, he was the drummer of the band Foo Fighters. And uh, I'm not a huge Foo Fighters fan, I like some of their songs, but I'm a big Dave Grohl fan, going all the way back to Nirvana, his days in Nirvana and those kinds of things. And so I was watching this thing as Dave was leading it. He, of course, was a good friend of Taylor. 
And as I'm watching the concert, I was noticing how many times there were references to Taylor, we're going to see you again, or Taylor, or pointing to Taylor who's up in heaven, or talking about all these other things. And here's the thing is that Dave Grohl, at least, uh, is on record of saying that he doesn't know whether or not there is a God. I don't think he's a believer. There were no references to Jesus, no references to God. It was just like, you know, in the afterlife, in heaven, at some point we will see Taylor again, and they were so confident of this fact. And I thought to myself, in some ways, like, it was great to see the spark of the divine, of the Imago Dei, and someone just wanting truth and wanting to see something beyond this life and feeling like we were made for eternity. But at the same time, I began to ask myself, uh, if we really broke it down, how does Dave think that this is going to happen, right? When we die, does the sky just open up and we just kind of all float up into heaven together? Um, is it about how good you are? If so, how good do you have to be? And who says how good you have to be in order to make it to the end there? And look, in some ways I was really encouraged in seeing that. In other ways, I was just really sad about it. Right? And I'll tell you this, that in the moment, I thought to myself, this is a time to pray for and to seek the welfare of Dave Grohl. <laughs> and so I was led to pray for Dave and those who were there uh, among him as they were leading and grieving the loss of their friend. But here's the thing, in all of this, people are still created in the image of God, and because they are, they're looking for truth. And if we're sensitive enough to see where people are looking for truth and how to meet them with the embodied truth of Jesus, we will begin to see these ways in which God has called us to be sent. Christopher Wright points out that when God calls the prophet Joel, he says to him that in order for people to come to God, they have to hear him. And he doesn't mean hear Joel. He means hear God. And in Joel 2.32, he, he doesn't just say that the people need to hear about me, but the people actually need to hear me. This is what God is saying. This reminds me of Moses' calling in some ways when God goes to Moses and says to him, you're going to go to the Israelites, you're going to tell them that I'm going to deliver them out of Egypt, and you're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell them the very same thing. And what is Moses' response? He's like, that's great, God, but what am I supposed to say? Who am I supposed to say sent me? Because this is kind of crazy. For me to go to the Israelites and say, this slave nation, we're going to escape the strongest military army on the face of the planet and revolt against them, they're going to think I'm crazy. So God says, tell them that I am has sent you. He turns his staff into a snake as a representation of all the things that God is going to do. These signs that not just that God is presenting these miraculous wonders, but that God is present, that God is there. So that Moses, when he presents this to the Israelites and when he presents uh, uh, this calling that God gives him to Pharaoh, he's not just talking about God, that God is actually with him and present in that place. That's the evidence of what's happening here. That's what miracles are evidence of, God's presence in the moment. During Jesus' ministry, when John the Baptist is in prison for preaching about Jesus, there's a moment there where he asks, where he, where he, where he wonders, is Jesus really the one that God has sent, or should we wait for another? And he sends that message to Jesus. Jesus sends the message back. You tell John this, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And what he's saying is that these signs and wonders are evidence of the fact that God is present among us, that God is here. In other words, what we see here is a pattern, and we see this in other places in Scripture, but there's this pattern of proclaiming the message of God that's accompanied by a miraculous sign that God displays to the one who is called and the one who is preaching and bringing that message. 
And by miraculous sign, I think C.S. Lewis' definition is pretty helpful here. He says a miracle is basically anything uh, that only, is something that only God can do. So anything that somebody would look at and a reasonable person would say, that's something that really can't be faked. It's something that a person can't do. Like, obviously, that's supernatural. Something greater than us or more powerful than us had to make that happen. And what people are looking for, then, as a result is the same thing that they were looking for when Moses came back from the burning bush and when Jesus claimed that he was the Son of God. Who is it that has sent you? And how do I know what you're saying is actually true? God met Moses in a burning bush. Jesus healed people. How does God do this today? Well, I think he certainly does heal people. I think that that happens. That still goes on. But I believe that he does something even more amazing. And what's more amazing about this miracle is that it's, it's greater than just a physical healing, and that it happens in every single Christ follower's life when they're born again. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's a miracle being described that happens in you when you come to faith in Jesus and are born again by his Spirit. It's patterned after the greatest miracle that happened in human history, the resurrection of Jesus. So much so that Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 1, Since you then have been raised with Christ, who is you, everyone who is in Christ, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? There is a miracle being accompanied with the sentence, with the message that we are bringing, and that miracle is you. That miracle is the new creation that God has made you. If you are in Christ and you are born again by the Spirit, God has made you a walking, talking miracle. And that's what he displays to the nations. Now look, physical healings are great. If you experience them, they're fantastic. But they're still just physical healings in the end. What we're talking about here is a life reborn, is new creation, is being raised from the dead. That's why the fruit of the Spirit and other things that we see in Scripture, like we talked about last week, are so important. They're not just merely ethical listings. They're not just merely things that we aspire to. They are the actual description of what it looks like for that miracle to be tangible in our lives. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. One of the great miracles that God has done is he's changed us from those who are in darkness to those who are in light. For those who display the desires of the flesh and the fruit of the flesh to those who display the fruit of the Spirit. And that's the most important task that's given to us by the most important person. The most important thing about what it means to be sent by God as the church, as an exile into this world that you have been made new and presented as a miracle of God's handiwork in the world. How do I know this is true? I know it's true because it's changed my life. How do you know it's true? You know it's true because it's made you new. It has miraculously changed you into something you were not before. Born again as a new creation. And I think what this means is that in the end, right, we have to live out the good news. We live out the gospel. The most important thing for us is not that we are comfortable. 
in this world. The most important thing is that we are faithful in this world. And part of being faithful is displaying what the gospel is all about in our lives. And look, if you think about it this way, we aren't supposed to feel at home and comfortable if we are in exile. We're told we're in exile and this world is not our home. We're not supposed to feel comfortable. In fact, it's supposed to be uncomfortable. I, know, I don't know about you, but if I leave my home for a couple days and I have to stay in a hotel or an Airbnb, I'm just not comfortable. I get to a point where I'm like, I've got to go back home because I need to be And the same kind of thing is happening as we're called out in exile. Yeah, there are great times. We, you know, there are a, a lot of things we can enjoy in this life and in this world. But in the end, we have to be cognizant of the fact that God doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to be faithful. Jesus' ministry wasn't comfortable. The apostles weren't comfortable. But they were joyful because they lived lives according to faithfulness. Because they understood what it meant to be sent. There's a cliche that you'll sometimes hear in sports, especially from coaches who are trying to get their athletes ready. It typically happens during like the two-a-days in football when it's like pad, you're in pads for, you know, two different practices during the day. And you'll hear coaches say this. I heard it all the time when I played football. You need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. <laughs> Some of you have heard that before. It's become a cliche, but what they're doing is they're preparing their athletes for the highest levels of competition. Because if you're going to win, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult at times. And you don't want to get to the place where you are uncomfortable and it distracts you from what you're supposed to be accomplishing and what you've been preparing to do, which is to win the game, ultimately. Perform at a high level. In the same way, we've been called, I feel like this is what God is saying to the Israelites. I want you to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes, you're going to be in exile, but I want you to build houses. I want you to settle down. I want you to have families. I want you to increase there. I want you to be comfortable being uncomfortable. So let's get really practical this morning as we close. We've been talking about having a response each, each Sunday, and I want to encourage you to have this response today. And we're about to wrap up our gathering here in a few minutes, and you know, we're going to pray, and then we'll sing a song, and then you know, we'll release you. And I think many of you will probably go in the lobby, have some conversations, maybe go get your kids from children's ministry, and then maybe you'll grab some friends and go to lunch, or maybe you'll just go straight home because it's the first day of the NFL season, and you've already been checking your scores and your fantasy points as during the sermon on your phone. I see a lot up here, guys. I see more than you think I do. I'm just going to tell you that. Nothing wrong with it. I'm going to go home and do the same thing. I'm going to go home and rest and watch some football and that kind of thing. But at some point this afternoon, what I want to encourage you to do, either this afternoon or this evening, is to ask the question, how would things change in my day-to-day -day life if I understood that God is sending me to where I'm going? And as you look at your coming week, ask yourself, like, these are some things I've got going. How is God sending me to these things? How is God sending me into work? What does it how does it change me to understand that I'm not just walking into work on a Monday morning and doing the same thing I've done, you know, for the X past X number of years? But how do I understand this from the standpoint of God sending me into this workplace? Of God sending me into the grocery store? Of God sending me into the gym? Of God sending me into my kids' soccer practice? How might that change the way that I look at how I go about my daily life? And then as you wake up tomorrow morning, ask the same question again. Spend some time with the Lord asking him. Maybe five minutes in the morning. Lord, how are you sending me today? How have you sent me in calling me into these places? Whatever they may be. The restaurant, the grocery store, the gym, 
your workplace and see how that might change us, see how that might change our perspectives and our callings. Let's pray. Lord, we are um, coming to you asking you that you would do that very thing in us, even now. I know that many of us will go home and we'll do that tonight. At some point, we'll take a breath and maybe it's before we jump into bed or as we jump into bed and we get ready to go to sleep. Just think about the coming week and all that you have prepared for us. Lord, knowing that you don't waste a circumstance or an opportunity or a relationship, we ask, Father, that you would help us to see what it means to be sent and how that might change our um, perspective just about the daily things that we engage in. We know, Lord, that um, it's easy to get caught up in just the mundane things, like I've got to get things done on Monday and I've got this thing coming up on Tuesday and if I can just get past that, then Wednesday's going to be a little bit better. And we're, so, we're such in a hurry to just get past the things in life that we rarely stop and think, Lord, is there something that you want to do in this situation? Is there some way that you want to show me your blessing even though um, it's going to be a tough day today? Even though I'm going to have a difficult meeting? Even though that I know it's going to be a tough conversation that I have to have? or a deadline that I'm facing. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see how you have sent us into that place by your presence. And then in the end, Lord, there, there might be um, an understanding of your meaning and purpose in that. Knowing that just as you said to the Israelites, as you sent them into exile so many years ago, Lord, that you were saying to us, I have sent you here and placed you here for a purpose. Help us to see that, Lord. By your grace, by your wisdom, by your spirit working in our lives, open our eyes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.